Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, welcome back. Uh, Today is the first of a handful of podcasts I recorded out in Malibu during the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. Uh, The first one is with Richard Beck and Jonathan Stormont. This is the preamble to the much-discussed Devil Palooza with Richard Beck, N.T. Wright, Greg Boyd, Tony Jones, Trip Fuller, myself. That's going to be out next week, so look for that in the podcast. And also, there is a video to watch, too. So I think we're going to have uh, a website where if you uh, sign up for it, we will email you a link to uh, check out the video for that Devil Palooza, which will be out next week. Uh, Richard and Jonathan and I talk a little bit about the Devil Palooza and, most of all, his new book. Let's so, do it. Your headphones on, Richard. Or just remember to don't do this with your microphone. Otherwise, just keep it on your mouth. Or you can put these headphones on. Which would you prefer? I'm good. I think I'm good. You I'll just sit here like this. Hey, for your class tomorrow about the Congo line, let me tell you your opening joke. My friend Paul, the uh, filmmaker... He uh, texted me this morning. He said, I just walked across the border of Congo today. And I texted him back and I said, while you're waiting in line, did you ever think, this is my first time ever being in a real Congo line? And he said, no. <laughs> I don't know why. What was he doing in the Congo? He's a filmmaker. And so oh, so he's doing something he down there? He was down in Rwanda doing some uh, Compassion International stuff. Hmm. He just got back from um, 20 miles away from Damascus doing stuff on... Uh, Syrian refugee crisis with uh, World Vision. Hmm. So, crazy stuff. Is there still violence in the Congo? Last I heard, uh, I could be out of touch I, with I have, what's going on down there. But I have no anyway. idea. No idea. Um, all right, so here we are. Um, last year, this time, Richard Beck, Jana Beck, myself. Hello, Richard. Hello. Hello, Jana. Hello. Uh, we had a three, well, four-person podcast. Jana was the fourth, of course. The third was Rob Bell. Uh, this year, we couldn't get Rob to join us, so we thought the best replacement would be the person who's preached as many Rob Bell sermons as anyone else, Jonathan Storman. <laughs> get ready for some awesome. There he is. Yeah. That's his tagline. Yeah, that's it. It's my catchphrase. Yeah. Um, hey, I'm a big fan of y'all's monthly wrap-ups. I, 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 I look forward to those every month. <laughs> I do not. You, it's just a kick in the pants. You, well, I think you give, as, you give as good as you get. mm you're no, the reason we no. do those, Richard. We were doing. A, I did a wrap up, and you text and said something about how much you like the Storm at Norsworthy wrap ups, and I thought, all right, it, we're going to make this happen on a monthly thing. So you so are. So you did this to me. I, I just like the 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 interesting dynamic that you have. The love. Yeah. Do you? It, that's one very, word for this. Very this. affectionate. <laughs> do you ever like psychoanalyze and go, "This is really what's going on here"? Yeah. Like, could you tell that his projection of the Rob Bell stuff is really some kind of deep-seated thing <laughs> when he talks about me and that one restraining order that I got, <laughs> that really this is a Glenn Close fatal attraction thing that he's got going on. I try not to get in the heads of my friends. It's, Thank you. It's, it's just, it's just a, a policy of life. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. That's real thoughtful of you. Particularly with you, too. Yeah. We'll talk later, because I would love to hear the... <laughs> So Freudian yeah. stuff going on with this guy. I there's nothing. Um, <laughs> just a monkey. Just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just empty. It's just cavernous. It's like, hey, are you hungry or tired? 
That's it. That's the only, <laughs> this is the only two questions in my head. Yesterday, I said, Jonathan, um, I get the feeling that in 10 years from now, we're going to be really embarrassed about what happens on these <laughs> podcasts. And he goes, 10 years from now? <laughs> yeah, I already feel that way. I have a, a deep regret after every time. I'm like, all right, talk to you later. It's a little bit of sh- you have to go shower afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Just dirty. Uh, so speaking of podcasts, um, okay, obviously, Richard, your book um, is out now. It's out, whatever. That's right, Reviving Old Scratches. Yes. Now out, and, for uh, sale. We, I don't know when the... Um, I don't know when the Devil Palooza is going to go up. I'm assuming this might go out before it. Okay, but we can talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Did you have fun, Stormy? You were there, by the way, standing up. The whole thank, time. thank you for telling me that. <laughs> it was great. Yes, because all my listeners know what you were doing. I know, but yeah. you said it to me, like Stormy. You were there, by the way. Like, we have microphones, it's so other people can hear this. Yes, I, I'm aware. of And that. I shouted out to my preacher here. You yeah, know, I called N.T. Wright, who was a guest, mm-hmm. brother Tom. Yeah, you know it's a small exclusive club, brother, brother Tom. Mm-hmm. So and Greg Boyd was there. Trip Fuller, Homebrew Christianity, and yourself and Tony Jones were all there. And yeah, it was. I thought it was a it was a great conversation. Yeah, it was. A little, I didn't know what to expect, and uh, I think N.T. Wright looked a little <laughs> confused initially about what where where he was. They kind of swooped him out of. Out of off the Pepperdine campus and brought him to a, a rooftop in the middle of the night where there was. <laughs> yeah, I don't, so, but I think I think once it started rolling, he, he felt comfortable. I and think then, the bright lights and the yeah. darkness kind of mixed together. It's like it's very bright on your face, but it's all dark all around you. He's like, I was just on the uh, like a a regal stage with a banner behind me, and now I'm here. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think he knew what it was. Initially, I've seen like, that yeah. face before, like. Um, on preachers who are going to youth rallies, and they're like, "Wait, what is this?" <laughs> That's I my I loved the whole thing. Three hours of standing, and it was kind of cold, but it was amazing. Um, I I had some questions about Devil Palooza. You have questions? Yeah, about Yeah, I ha- I have it. Okay, um, for who? Well, I mean, for for you guys. Okay, because I was sitting there thinking as I was watching this. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything y'all are talking about so far is really interesting and abstract spiritual warfare. And then Greg Boyd comes in and mm-hmm. tells that story. It's oh a yeah. Crazy right. story. Yeah. yeah. Barbed wire cutting someone's head off. Hold on. They're, if they haven't heard this, nobody's head actually gets detached from But Yeah. Greg, Greg tells a story. If you weren't there, he tells a story that, that he, he didn't really believe in, in, demon possessed or anything but he had this you know kind of radical encounter with a young woman that was a i guess a member of a church he was pastoring and she became really self-destructive and was cutting herself and had wrapped barbed wire around her neck and was cutting off and it was like as he was wrestling her and trying to stop her from hurting herself kind of had a realization that he was encountering something that his western seminary education couldn't account for and um, I've heard him tell that story before, but he told it there that night. So what? I, I was, I mean, it was kind of sh- jarring yes. because everything up until that point had been theory. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it's, and then he got into, and there is a question that I wanted to ask okay. you here. Then he got into the stuff on how uh, anthropologists have realized the Western world is every bit of a construct, kind of Charles Taylor stuff. Right. 
and um, that if they were going to go to developing countries, they were going to have to go native. And when they did, they saw levitation and exorcisms or were possessed themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, I guess the question I have is in it, how do you unbuffer yourself? Or is it, is this, is this what you're thinking when Greg Boyd is talking about that stuff? How do you un Charles Taylor's? Yeah. Well, I mean, I I still have a, it's hard. It's like I I said that night because I was asked that question. And I think Josh Graves today in a class up in Malibu asked me a similar question. I was on another panel with Greg Boyd and he asked me to react to that story because Greg told it again. And, Again and, today? Yeah, yeah. Just, just, just. He just asked me about my reaction as a psychologist, and it, it's just hard from this distance. Yeah, yeah. To kind of say, given what legit. he's describing, that that is, you know, is explainable with psychiatric mm-hmm. constructs. You know, because as I mentioned in, in reviving old scratch, I've, I worked for four years in a psychiatric psychiatric hospital. I've seen be- behaviors that extreme. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like I've seen, you've seen that. I've seen. Well, I mean, I Not haven't that, seen anybody wrapping barbed wire because they wouldn't have access to that kind of thing. But I've seen people. I, I, I had, I had patients crack into lights and, you know, grab, grab the fluorescent tubing and cut themselves with it. I've seen. There was a big kid named Ben, and he was three hundred pound kid, and he had this kind of greasy hair that over his eyes, and he would listen to death metal and just kind of shake just a scary scary kid and one day um somebody was drinking a coke can next to him very early in his stay with us and he uh picked it up he ripped it in half he's that big of a kid he just ripped this can in half and began cutting his wrist with Ugh. it you know and that was just big a big part of his treatment he had this kind of weird fetish with cans like anytime it was a can he'd rip them in half and cut himself with it but you know so through through treatment we you know, worked it, you know, worked the problem. And so by the time he was discharged, he wasn't doing that anymore. What I'm saying is I've seen people and we would have to fight him and wrestle him the cans out of his hands. And I've seen crazy behaviors like that, but, but at no point did I think that I was encountering anything occult in that behavior. I just thought I was dealing with a very, very disturbed kid. All that to say is given, given that when I hear a story like Greg's telling, I, I still from a distance can't say whether or not, I can adjudicate. Yeah, that's but psychiatric versus demonic. And 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 so when he talks about the third world and, other, and missionaries come back telling lots of experiences again from from my but perspective, the, I can't tell. The, it, those so. stories work because to most of us, we're so unaccustomed to people who have those kind of struggles, and so they're just so out there. We don't have a box to put them in, yeah. and so we just say, "Oh, that's like the 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 junk drawer of." you know, disorders is, well, that must be the occult, but someone who has a much larger cabinet that you can say, yes, that goes in this box. We've treated it. There's a protocol for how you deal with someone like that uh, in uh, a psychiatric ward or whatever it would be. Um, it doesn't sound as um, uh, unbelievable to you as it would to someone like me who doesn't have that kind of training. Yeah, I guess, yeah, you're the the scope and the extremes of what you've been exposed to are kind of wider or whatever. So all that to come back to what Jonathan was saying, um, I, I still just would reserve, I don't know. You know, I would not, th- there was nothing in the story or or in things being described in third world context that would make me immediately go, oh, you know, 
yeah. that 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 saw that's evidence. That's that's enough. I think st- still people, at least people that I'm writing the book for, are still going to just in the back of their mind say, until I myself see something yeah. that pushes me to the ep- epistemological horizon, where like I just cannot explain that anymore. And 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 I'm not I'm not close to that. Being open to those experiences, I just would say I myself have not. Greg Boyd felt he saw what he saw, and yeah. and, and I will take that as I'll take that as data for him. But um, other people might explain it differently. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't trying to get you to like say uh, yeah that's legit as a psychologist or anything. I w- my my question was his stuff on Charles Taylor, disenchanted, yeah, porous. Because you talk about this a lot in your book. I do. And the stuff about how going native, I guess my question can is... You, can you explain what going native means? Well, like, basically, they, they try to live in the developing countries like the people around them, and they found themselves porous, to I use Charles State. Yeah, uh-huh. So, yeah. um... So, people from America... You did that, at, you did that at, at Freedom, basically, is my take on it. And, I mean, you, you go to this church pl- plant campus thing that we have where there's lots of people who think differently than you. The Holy Ghost conga line right, is right. you going native. Mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying. I, I would say a couple of things about it. That one, I, I read something from Ross Douthit. Is that how you say his last name? Ross, a New York Times yeah, columnist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, wrote some, he wrote a couple of columns about a year or two ago about um, apparitions in Japan after, I think, the tsunami. And But one of the things, and he was working with Charles Taylor's stuff, and I think the most, the thing that haunts me, to use a loaded word in this conversation, the thing that haunts me about his <laughs> column was he, was he was saying, it's, it's not just so much that the, the, the porous, the buffered self, and, and for those who haven't read Charles Taylor's work in a secular age, the, the, the buffered self is the Western self that is very internal. You know, all, it's very inward focused, and there's a clean separation between the internal life in the external world, and the poorest self is the the self w- that can be penetrated by external things like spirits or spells or things like or demons or whatever. But his his point in the in the column that I still think a lot about is it's not just that Westerners disbelieve in spirits or demons; it's that this buffered self changes their perception. It actually is a perceptual filter. And, and it's so it's not so much that they just disbelieve, it's just they can't believe. They, they, their experience, the way they experience the world is fundamentally changed yeah. and altered, and that is what's creating the disenchantment. It's not skepticism. It right. is fundamentally a, a selfhood that affects perception. And so... Um, and there's lots of good stuff that comes along with that. Right, there is. There is. And, and I would say, but for me, I wouldn't say necessarily my experience at Freedom... And the reason why freedom is an important part of the book is because that's where kind of my disenchanted kind of social justice, liberal Christian stuff kind of crashed into a kind of a Pentecostal and charismatic spirituality of the margins in the church planet Highland where Jonathan pastors um, reaches out to a very marginalized population. So it's not, I wouldn't say necessarily my, my perceptions have changed out there, but where myself has become porous as much as I've learned to kind of open myself up. So I, I look outward now. I have a more kind of receptive posture just because the spirituality I encounter out there is 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 is, is, is very much 
oriented toward receiving and being affected by the Holy Spirit. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think so. It's, it's maybe a move in that direction. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, when you say the word pores, just give a working de- definition for that. Well, um, like a sponge, it has holes in it, it's permeable. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so the idea is that the, the, the delineation between the self and the world is, um, isn't walled off, but there are gaps and things can enter and exit from the self. And so the self can be affected yeah. by the external world. Um, so demon possession would be, you know, the classic example of that. So something on the outside is able to get on, get something on the outside can get on the inside, mm-hmm. you know, so the self can be affected, taken over, um, and, and positively would be the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, one of the things in the book that uh, you, you respond to from Greg Boyd, uh, obviously was not the story because that was told after the book was written, but his stuff with, uh, is it revolt theology? Is that the, the phrase? The theology of revolt. The yeah. Theology of revolt. The, theology of revolt. And so it, it has a different picture of uh, for how we encounter and deal with suffering. And I found this to be one of the most helpful things uh, because often suffering leads to this... Uh, intellectual paralysis where you, you can't figure out conceptually how this works, and so people can end up losing their faith because this is the big issue for for many of us. For me, it's like, well, how, how is there a God if they're suffering in the world? And I intellectually can't wrap my head around it. Mm-hmm. And we're just talking about my friend Paul when he was in Syria. Uh, we, we As I was talking with him about seeing all these people who are going through this awful tragedy, like trying to make sense of it is impossible. And the reason I was trying to make sense of it in my own head was so that I could sleep at night. And it's just like this intellectual exercise that doesn't ever come to a conclusion. But this revolt, the theology of revolt, gives you a different direction because it's not just about an intellectual exercise, but it's about response. Mm-hmm. And, and so explain how the response reframes our experience with suffering. Yeah, I think a couple of things. One of the 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 reasons why I really resonate with Greg Boyd's work and his book God at War, where he articulates the warfare worldview of the Bible and the theology of revolt, was because I think I've encountered. I just had a lot of people in myself struggle, have faith struggles. Like if you go around and inventory people, it's like, what are your biggest faith problems or issues? I'd say you know nine times out of ten, it's problem suffering, problem of evil, problem suffering, problem pain, and 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 what happens is people encounter that and they turn inward. They they start. Puzzling it out. How can a, all, a powerful God, all-powerful God, who's all-loving, allow evil to exist? And so there's this logical puzzle. Mm-hmm. How do you get those three things to fit together? And the wheels in our minds start spinning, and the doubts uh, build up. Well, one of the things I noticed about that is, is the way our compassion makes that fuel, creates fuel for that engine. Because lots of liberal, progressive Christians are, are very compassionate. They compare about justice. They compare about suffering. And so that suffering and that compa- that compassion is what draws them to Jesus. That's what mm-hmm. they would love about Jesus. You know, he just is, is a compassionate, loving person. Um, if progressives love anything, they love Jesus. They might not like the church, they love Jesus. No. But that, and then that social justice impulse that kind of begins pulling them into that suffering, pulls them deeper, deeper, deeper into the suffering. And suddenly, compassion is creating more of a theodicy burden, mm-hmm. more of a more the, the weight of the problem of evil um, gets heavier for them because of their compassion, and so the irony for I think a lot of a liberal and progressive Christians is um, that the very thing that that is kind of at the center of their faith, their concern over suffering, 
becomes the very thing that undermines their faith in mm. Jesus. And so I noticed that in myself, and I noticed that amongst a lot of progressive and liberal Christians, and, and I was trying to figure out like what, what, what solves that problem. And I think Greg's book um, and his idea of a theolo- theology of revolt helps there because his argument is that the Bible doesn't seem really concerned about coming up with origins. The Bible just kind of assumes that there is a dr- there's a dramatic backdrop of, of struggle that, that, that creation is resisting the rule of God. And you can name it lots of different things. The Satan is kind of the, the personification of that rebellion, that antagonism toward the kingdom of God. And where Satan comes from isn't really specified. What what is how exact relationship between the Satan and God isn't really specified. All you know when the Bible kind of opens up in the Gospels is that Jesus is immediately in a conflict. And I think when you walk out the door in the morning, you have a choice. You can sit there and puzzle about why suffering, or you can say, you know, um, it just is what it is. I I don't know why, but I but I'm called to act as an agent of grace. And to me, that became a real big moment in my life mm. when I decided to, you know, marginalize my doubts and, and um, kind of make the conclusion I draw in the book is the only theodicy we get in the Bible is resistance. Yeah. That's the only theodicy there is, is just resist and um, fight the good fight. If, if someone is listening going, uh, my doubts are overwhelming, I can't imagine marginalizing them, as you said. Yeah. How would you help walk them through the process of moving the doubts of, because you know, from the questions of, well, where does this come from, and why isn't this, moving that to the side and moving a response to the center, like, how do you think they could do that? I, I would say worship with the poor. Hmm. That's what I would say. Because... That going out to the prison, I tell a lot of prison stories in Reviving Old Scratch because because that's kind of where I relearned a lot of these things um, in a Freedom Fellowship. Because I, I realized when I was worshiping with the poor that my my doubts um, were often a symptomatic of my privilege, mm-hmm. like because I was so privileged and buffered. Like, like, you know, economically, economically, like I like the gospel or another way to say it is go to if if it's not amongst the poor, go to a place where the gospel makes a difference. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times our doubts become so burdensome because at the end of the day, we don't really need faith. Like we can wake up on Sunday morning and go, ah, you know, we're not going to go to church. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't. It's not it's not a vital thing. So when I was so when I was went out to the prison and I told this story at Devil Palooza and. I thought, you know what, um, problem of suffering, uh, prison's a pretty dark place. I, I should go out there and, um, you know, my first classes that I would do out there would be about, like, the Lament Psalms. I told this story, you know. Yeah, and so I went out. Story. I went out there to, so the very first series I started dealing with the prisoners was to, you know, go through Psalms of disorientation and lament and grief. And, and so... I was doing that, and about halfway through the class, the prisoners were like, "Whoa! Like, what is this? Is this all you're going to talk about?" You know, it's like, like, and they're like, "We get it. Like, prison really sucks. It's a really bad. You know, like, you don't have to come out here and tell us that. You yeah. know, there's there's sadness and we grief. Get it. And all it sucks, yeah, like we yeah. get it. Like, so we want some good news. And I was like, "Well, you know, I'm 
not really good at that. Like, <laughs> like, like, you know, but I realized the reason why I couldn't sing songs of hope is because I was a privileged person that could be, there's an irony right there. I, I didn't, I didn't need hope because, you know, I had a good job and you got, yeah. Yeah. And, and they needed hope. And, and I realized, I realized that my doubts and my deconstruction just, just wasn't good news for them. You know, and, mm. and, 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 and so I had to learn how to speak about good news um, and stand in solidarity with the good news as I experienced on the margins. And I think that helped me um, marginalize my own doubts. I'm so not saying it's the only way, but that's one of the ways I did it. I like that. I think that, and, and people, well, I won't say that, but so your compassion got you into trouble with that cross pressure you're talking about, and it also got you out of it. Because you started realizing this is not good news for the, the people that I'm right. trying to care right. for. Yeah, I think that's right. So for me, I can understand the deconstruction is good news for me. Like it's, it mm-hmm. seems like it's good news because I'm a person of privilege. Right. So you probably should move into the grief and the lament of the world. You know, so um, because you're on, we're on the top, per se. Yeah. And so it's probably good that we spend a lot of our time not being triumphalistic. Yeah. Because it seems more authentic. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's good. And one of the things that, you know, you, you obviously talk about is the book that, you know, you come from a progressive side and you're kind of moving back. Uh, and then you're also pushing against a, the a conservative side. And I, I like the way that your understanding of the devil is that whenever there is an issue, it's never with the person. It's not flesh and blood, um, but it's, but it allows the location of evil to not reside with a person, but with this bigger force or entity. And so it humanizes other people. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the other temptation, I think. Well, one of the things I talk about in the book is how um, a lot of liberal and progressive Christians will, um, wa- wanting to have a very disenchanted view of spiritual warfare, what I call the scooby Dooification. Yeah. There's a chapter on Scooby-Doo. In there, I think that's one of your favorite chapters. I love it, you know. But but the, for the, many reasons. But the metaphor, <laughs> more pictures. I, I think I more pictures. Like, yeah, just down on my level. But you know, but you know, in a Scooby Doo episode, you're tracing out that you know, in an episode, it begins with the spooky occult. You know, there's a goose, a ghost, or a, a ghoul or a goblin. You know, but by the end of the episode, it's unmasked, and it's just Mr. Jenkins, the greedy banker. You know, there's there's there is evil there, but it's not a spooky evil. It's 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 injustice. It's it's exploitation. Okay. It's it's robbery. Right? Something something's going on behind the scenes. Okay, for the liberal progressive audience who's listening to this right now, how would you help them look at our uh, orange face Republican candidate for president not as the source of all evil? What would you do? Like, how would you get them to see <clears throat> Donald Trump as not the epicenter of all that's wrong in the in our world today? Make you earn your money on the oh book right gosh. now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, how I is don't, Donald Trump I, not a bad... How is he not a bad person? No, I mean, how... Uh, work this out on the example of a... He's flesh and blood. Yeah, he, he is flesh and blood, you know. He's enemy number one to many, many of my listeners. Well, I think... Let me, so to back up with that, so what happens is, is that when you kind of strip away the spiritual and all you see are human agents doing bad things... And, and you reduce your fight against evil as a fight against systemic injustice, 
and it becomes a very politicized kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That, so let me, let me back up and say this. A lot of liberal progressive people don't like this language about the devil and demons. And, and their, their worry is that if you start talking about the devil and talking about demons, you're going to demonize other people. Mm-hmm. Like that, so it's just best to leave that language alone. And my argument is, well, that's ridiculous. Like, if you could eradicate the language of the devil or demons, that's, that humans are not, aren't, are not going to demonize each other, like mm-hmm. humans aren't going to dehumanize each other, like that, mm-hmm. the, the dehumanization is a social psychological phenomenon. It's not produced by this language. So, mm. so the, what we need to do is use this language so we can grab name and then, and then move the fight, the struggle away from flesh and blood. Because if all there are are human agents, and all it is is a political struggle, like if that's what justice means, if justice means the good people take power away from the bad people, then, the, then our battle is inherently about flesh and blood. And I think you see that play out in a lot of the struggles for social justice. It is a very mm-hmm. demonizing kind of battle because somebody like a Donald Trump is the problem, and therefore he has to be the devil, and he has to be eradicated. And these are by people who don't believe in the devil. Yeah. They're, they're, they're treating him as the devil, and they don't believe. And the reason is, is because our imaginations have been so reduced to grabbing a hold of political power and winning that game. We have to win it. Mm-hmm. And if we don't win it, there'll be hell to pay. Um, we have to get this right. And I think Jesus's imagination is a little bit different than that because that's the very temptation that Satan gives him on the mountain. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you could be in charge of the world. And he says no. He's, he says no. And he goes to the cross. And, um, and that's kind of one of the things I, I point out in the book is that the vision of, of spiritual warfare or the reduction of spiritual warfare to, 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 to social justice social justice creates violence in a sense so i I, to go back to donald trump i would say you know of course we're going to think he's the enemy because he's on the other side he's on the other political party but but the reason why donald trump has won the nomination is because that side knows that hillary clinton is the devil as well like Mm -hmm. There's plenty of devils to go around yeah. on everybody. Everybody has their own devil, and um, and that's why his rise is happening. Or he, they got the devil. You know, the 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 rise of Trump would be due to other devils, immigrants, yeah, you know, Muslims, but all of these being aimed at human beings. Yeah, and the big trick that's being played is how all of us are kind of caught up in this. Yeah. Demonization of flesh and blood, which is Ephesians says our battle is not against that. Yeah. So I. Oh, okay. Microphone on your face, John. Gotcha. (laughs) So actually, one of the things that I appreciated the most about your book, which is a great book, you're a really good writer. The um, the way. So earlier you said that progressives love Jesus. And I think I think that's true. If there's anything about Christianity they love, it's going to be Jesus. But there's certain parts of Jesus that are really hard for us. Mm-hmm. Like, Donald Trump is in the Gospels, and Jesus is kind to him. I mean, the Donald Trump characters in the Gospels, the centurions and the people of power and privilege and, and oppression, um, who do awful things in the first century Jerusalem. And Jesus is kind to those those kinds of people. Um, and, and you push against 
that way. So the way you do it, I think, is with that story of Justine. How do you say her name? Oh, the she was the most media. hated person yeah, in the world. Justine yeah. Sacco, is it? Yeah. Yeah, the girl who tweeted the thing about, uh, I'm going to Africa, I hope I don't get AIDS. Oh, that's right, right I'm white. Yeah. yeah, just a terrible... A um, dumb joke and just a ton of shame. And Yeah. It, it's a joke that would be a nondescript joke if any comedian said it on a stage. Right. No one would think twice about that. If, yeah. You know, Amy, if uh, um, Amy Schumer says that joke, it doesn't even get tweeted by anyone. Right. Okay. But it goes viral, and she's fired by the, you know... She's, and she's fired. Shame, shame. PTSD like afterward? Yeah, yeah, a bunch of stuff. Did right. she have PTSD afterward? I felt like I read a story in which she was... Her or maybe someone else who had the same sort of like internet shaming kind of thing. So you've been publicly shamed, that book? Mm-hmm. So, and you, you talk about how... So um, just this week at Pepperdine, I had a, a, a woman tell me that in all her years growing up around Christians... In her experience, it had been people on the right who were more conservative who used language of holy, holiness and honoring God who were the most, um, like, kept most exclusive. Mm-hmm. And she said, over the last few years, something's happened where it's people who, with causes that I care about, but I, I don't care about the same degree that they care about it or, or whatever, who have become the most exclusive. And I think I think you're on to something. I think your finger is on some kind of pressure point that's happening with us not being able to talk about the um, the battle is not against flesh and blood. And and the part of the book that I think I appreciated the most because I see you living it out is the way to do this is to drink bad coffee. With, <laughs> to drink bad coffee. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, like... Yeah. Drinking bad coffee is saving the world. You right. Know, it's a metaphor in the book or whatever. Because you can't condemn Justine... I don't know how to say her name, but... If, if you if you refuse to keep it abstract and yeah, if you don't know her, but if she is somebody that you're going to see that week, um, and that you've made kind of vows of Christian community with, like you see yeah. her as a sister or a brother, it's hard to you know. There's lots of stories about that. Um, uh, that other I forget there was a writer talking. Lots of people talk about how when they. Um, get to offer communion to people up front, and they just see the entire body of Christ come up in front of them, and they offer them the 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 you know the blood and the the the, the juice and the the bread to represent Christ's body and blood broken and shed for us. That's just a powerful experience. That that these these people that are coming up and you're in your sharing Eucharist with these are the people you have to forgive over and over again. You mm-hmm. have issues with them, and there's something about the Christian community that you're called to do that. So yeah, I think I think there's something that's happened with social media that causes us to... And again, that's the irony, right? The, these are lots of people who would, wouldn't give talk about the devil or the demons any any sort of any sort of margin, and yet we quickly still scapegoat and we, we demonize people very quickly because they're in the abstract. But the, but the beauty of the local church, to go back to the drinking bad coffee, is that's just a metaphor because, you know, the coffee we drink at our church is made in those old coffee percolator kinds of things and so lots of people would say it's bad coffee but that ritual of gathering with people on sunday morning sharing prayer requests getting along you know it's it's not always fun you know but the the discipline of very diverse people from very different backgrounds coming together and trying to love each other in very concrete or tangible ways um and so yeah yeah the the discipline of of kind of the 
from the boring to the irritating mm -hmm. daily work of getting along with people. And so John, John Vanier, you know, the La Arche communities, I quote him in the book and his, the quote he is, is like, when we, when we are alone, we, we believe we can love everybody. You know, we can, yeah. and I, I think, I think Facebook and Twitter make us think that like mm -hmm. from that vantage point, I can tweet out and, and stand in solidarity with every, every cause that comes up, you know, and no matter what it is, I can always be on the right side and always virtue signal how I stand in solidarity like and with this favorite. And this. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, <clears throat> I can, I can look like mother Teresa on Facebook and, you know, I can get that all right, but Live, loving the person right in front of you who voted for Trump yeah. or loving the person in front of you who, you know, is kind of socially awkward. Um, yeah. You know, like that, that Vanier's quote goes on to say how like it's in real community, my own brokenness really gets manifested. The, 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 you know, the jerk that I really mm -hmm. am is, man, is only manifested as I'm standing around Ranking bad coffee with my brothers and sisters at church because I realized, huh, this is kind of hard work. Yeah. And it takes discipline. It's a spiritual formation practice to do. To, have to have do you that. seen, uh, I always say Jean Vanier because I guess I'm. I say Vanier. I, I could be wrong about that. I don't know who. Vanier. You wrote the book. I didn't write the book. Well, I don't know. Jean Vanier. There's two different people, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But have you seen his interview? I think it might have been. Or, or as, John, as, Tom, as John would call him, his like, you know, brother. Yeah. Brother, brother Gene. Brother Jean. <laughs> you call him Brother Gene. <laughs> but his stuff with uh, Henry Nowen, where there's yeah. an interview, it might have been a Work of the People video, where he talked about how Nowen had this you know, robust view of community, but in reality, it was hard to be friends with Nowen because he was so needy or something like oh, that. Yeah, right? And it was just like, oh, wow, you're talking about Henry Nowen like he's a real person. And he mm -hmm. talks about like community is this big, beautiful idea, but in the like the very practical around the bad coffee, as you'd use the metaphor, it's it, it it's work, it's effort, it, it it takes it takes you doing something to make it work, and uh, yeah, I think it's a great metaphor for what that is with the bad coffee thing, even though I don't drink coffee, um, <laughs> but being around you is work, yeah, so. I mean, it's, it's, it's an effort. This, hey, Richard, <laughs> yes. seriously, why would you take his side? Because he's my pastor. Yeah. And, and, uh, so we should, we should team up a little could, bit more in this. Good. He can excommunicate me, and, and you can't. <laughs> I can edit this podcast. That's it's really fun, though. <laughs> Luke Norsworthy is the best. Um, so one of the things I did no. think was the best uh, at the end, um, which, by the way, I've always said that the my favorite writing you've done was a if I had to like pinpoint any little section of anything you've done, first half of authenticity of faith. I read this book and I go, this might be my favorite thing you've ever done. Mm -hmm. This was really good. I, as soon as I finished, I thought, wow. was it because he kept it so simple, <laughs> accessible? Just that's funny. Real but funny. you really we're running really in the popular. trying not to get caught in the crossfire here. I don't want to take sides. <laughs> no, it eventually turn on you though. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, it would I don't not. That's I wouldn't do it, but you might. No, might there's be, no uh, way. No. Um, so at the end, you talk about this—the love breaking in, or whatever. What was the language you used? 
Well, I use lots of different languages, but the idea of kind of it's a the book. apocalypse a of love, the invasion of love. Invasion of love. The invasion that's what's of love, yeah. And so you tell uh, you know, great stories of uh, the White Rose community during uh, mm-hmm. Third Reich in, in Nazi Germany. Uh, you tell a great story about um, pastor in San Diego, uh, Colby Martin, is that his name? Colby Martin, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, a story about just giving out peanut butter sandwiches. Yeah, we had done a retreat together. And I, I was I ended the 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 retreat with this idea that love break that the kingdom of if the kingdom of God is love then it's not going to enter the world it's not going to evade the world from the top down back back to that idea about trying to grab power because that's inherent in that kind of social justice idea we need to take power from the top down if we can get if we can become in charge of the world if we can become king of the world but if it's not that if that's not how the the kingdom of God comes. And Jesus rejects it, and it's rather going to come from the bottom up. It's going mm-hmm. to subvert the world from the bottom up, from the grassroots. So it's a grassroots movement. C.S. Lewis calls it a great campaign of sabotage. Then love is going to have to be improvisational, creative, um, opportunistic, and even theatrical in its spontaneity. And um, it interrupts the world. So that last chapter is called Satan Interrupted. And so that idea of subverting the world, and I think at the actual retreat we called it sub, uh, um, the subversion of doing beautiful things. That's mm. what we called it. I think that was the title of the last talk I gave, the subversion of doing beautiful things. So I kind of told, told about the White Rose. I told other stories about people going out there and subverting the world by doing a beautiful thing. And it goes back to that passage where that woman comes in, interrupts that meal, Jesus is eating with kind of, you know, men and elites, and she interrupts the meal and washes his feet, anoints his feet, and they start kind of making the question her, and he says, hey, she's done a beautiful thing to me. And I think that's the only time in the Scripture Jesus describes the behavior as beautiful. Hmm. And so we kind of use that hmm. idea of, like, going, going to a place, interrupting a place where probably you're not supposed to be and doing something kind of theatrical and to, to, to show the kingdom coming. And uh, so we challenged the group, said, that's your homework assignment. Get together in a group, come up with a plan. How are you going to subvert the world by doing a beautiful thing in the, in the coming weeks or whatever? And so he got an email. I went home and back to Texas, and a week later he sent an email from one of his prisoners saying, you know, I, I whipped up some peanut butter sandwiches, put them in a polka dot-covered party bag, and during lunch they were in the downtown California city and went out in the street and just handed out these peanut butter sandwiches, you know, and got to meet all these people out on the street. A lot of them were homeless and um, one of them was their birthday and just, just, they just felt like they'd done this. It seems so simple, mm-hmm. but this kind of creative, spontaneous act of just handing out sandwiches on the street during their lunch hour um, was the way they kind of did a beautiful thing that day. They just kind of really made a big difference. So I, yeah, I share that story in, in the book about how spirit, that's spiritual warfare. That's in, inserting love into a world that where it wasn't there before yeah I, I love that it's a book about spiritual warfare the devil it's like this big you know abstract idea and the book ends with giving out peanut butter sandwiches yeah and so it's like <laughs> it, it's like a very accessible like this is what spiritual warfare looks like and, it, and it's not like you know crazy you know spandex wearing pitchfork little cartoon characters but it's how we deal with this is it's very basic like this is 
this is something everyone can, can get behind and, and, and participate in. Yeah, I think that's the trouble. I think that the whole language of spiritual warfare has been so taken with kind of spooky visions of the exorcist or paranormal activity that 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 we miss what what Jesus did. I mean, the way the way in Acts Peter, I think it's Peter, described Jesus' behavior. It says he went about he just went about doing good mm. and healing those under the power of the devil. Mm. Like that those two are linked. He just went about doing good and healing those under the power of the devil. Uh, he didn't run for office. He didn't, you know, he didn't sign a petition. He just went about doing good and healing those under the devil. And I think that's kind of what spiritual warfare kind of looked like for Jesus, and it should look like for that. And so for some of us, doing good is making some peanut butter sandwiches, and it looks different for different kinds of people. So every day you wake up and do good, invade the world with love, and... That's kind of what Jesus did. That's how he fought the Satan. Yeah. It's good. Stormit, did you like the book? It was a good book. It was a really good book. What was book. your favorite part of the book, Stormit? Um, I, I, I think I just said it. I loved how embodied it was, you know, and I know you and Jana and the stories. I, you know, every Sunday I get to see you. Sitting, there. but you changed some names in there, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, well, I think you're supposed to yeah. change some names. So, yeah, so I changed names. I'm people, not sure but... what to call the people that I. <laughs> oh, yeah. Know, what is that? Because you, know, you know these people. These are yeah. stories of our church in and many ways. So, was, what was that like you to read stories of your church in the book? Oh, it was powerful. Yeah. I mean, because uh, I'm, I'm kind of reading. Because you took through... credit for a lot of it. You're like, well, the, the, <laughs> yeah. The, the, no, no. I don't want to take credit for a lot. On, uh, yeah, I'm just kidding. It's the. Some of the stuff that I think was the best was yeah. stuff that was really messy and dysfunctional. So you know, that reminds it's almost me of like preaching. You're at Luke's church. I do think it was it was it was really sweet though to kind of get to tell some of those stories because those are people that we both love a lot. Yeah. You know. And you know, the I I could so Luke and I were talking on the way here, and I know we need to end this up, but um the Stephen Pressfield's stuff on resistance and how any creative act, anytime you're trying to create something, if it's worth it, if it's going to add beauty to the world or whatever, there is a kind of resistance. And I was thinking about the way you're defining spiritual warfare pretty wide open that even Stephen Pressfield could say, yeah. Yeah. um, I think that's a big part of it too I mean one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book is because and some people might say is that is the warfare metaphor a great metaphor like can there be other kind of metaphors but and maybe there maybe there are better because I think I think in Ephesians it's actually like our it's not the our warfare it's like our struggle you yeah. know so it is a struggle but there is some sort of effort the idea being is that the, if the kingdom of God is going to establish a foothold you know, um, in our lives, in our hearts, if love is going to invade the world, then it's going to have to be a really intentional, disciplined effort. It's not an easy thing. Yeah. I quote Pat Benatar in the book, the, her song, Love is a Battlefield, yeah. as a metaphor. And I don't, I mean, for me, it's a battle. Like, it's very difficult for me to love people. It's an election year. I think lots of people struggle <laughs> with loving this year. But families, it's hard to love in a family. It's hard to love in a marriage. It's hard to love in a workplace. It's hard mm-hmm. to love in a diverse church it's it's very difficult to love and so if we're going to love if that's the battle then struggle effort there's going to be resistance to it and 
I think I just want to have, wrote, I want to write the book and say that call demands a degree of intentionality. You're not just going to roll out of bed in the morning and just like, some people are naturally kind, but most of us are not going to have to roll out of the bed in the morning and, and, and just automatically do the loving thing. We're going to be petty. We're going to be vain. We're going to be irritable. That's Luke's be, business card. <laughs> petty, vain, and irritable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. That's, that's pretty much my tagline. You know, so, so the idea of, 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 of fighting for something like love is, yeah. is kind of, it's paradoxical sounding, but I think that's the heart of, of what Jesus was up to um, and calling us to be a part of. Yeah, well, I, I've heard that love wins. It does, so it does win. It's good. After a fight. After a fight. <laughs> well, um, have you thought about getting a sticker to put on the front of the book that says, N.T. Wright read half the book and he said it's good. That's funny, yeah. He, he, he. <laughs> yeah, he read half and he really liked it. So I would we, put we got that to talk to him about resume. a little bit later on and he said he, he was really enjoying the book so far. So plan to go back when he got back to... to it's to pretty impressive. It, so. Guys, we've yeah, yeah. read more than N.T. Wright. Yep. That's, this is... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, um, Jonathan, you, you can go ahead and say your normal line. Thanks for interacting with me. <laughs> Is that going to be your catchphrase now? Uh, it's yours. I didn't oh, come up gosh. with it. He, he, yes, he yes. blogged about Thanks for interacting with James K.A. Smith, mm-hmm. and uh, who he blogged effusive praise about how great he was. And then James like, yeah, you're hey, last blog. I heard blog. about Smith from you, Desiring you the Kingdom. You reference him in the book. Well, that's right. Yeah, I, I enjoy his stuff on Desiring the Kingdom and his, his latest book that you're blogging through. Have you um, read the new one? I haven't read the new one, but I read Desiring the Kingdom. It's, it's like Desiring the Kingdom for like freshmen in college. Yeah, yeah it's a, for a general audience. Yeah. yeah, I love his work. It's really good. Yeah, so he, uh, he responded to Jonathan and said, your blog's stupid or something. Because we were talking about... Um, it doesn't matter. He, he and, came on and commented on your series at Jesus on, Creed? Yeah. He, he tweeted... It was a, it, it, there was a little bit of pushback. Are we really going to... No, I'm just... He wanted to know why you said, things are interacting with me. Because he was... We were talking about them in the wrap-up, and he just wanted to you know, suck up to him a little bit in case he was listening to the wrap-up. There's no way in the world James K.A. Smith is listening to you, heretical Luke. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Ordained by God to the fires of hell. Oh, come which, on. Well, I mean... You know what? I got an email from his publicist who said he really enjoyed being on my podcast. Yeah, common which, grace, man. Common grace. Which is more nice things than he's ever said about you. <laughs> no, so, that is not true. Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay, we're done here. Uh, Richard, well done in this book. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. For I appreciate out it. Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>